unprocess your diet as much as you can or process process your diet as far as it means you know cooking your food um, but don't ultra process your diet ultra processed foods resemble nothing we've ever eaten in the history of our species and they are displacing our natural diets with devastating consequences so say david robenheimer and stephen simpson in their great new book eat like the animals Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Joining me to discuss the rise of ultra-processed foods and their environmental and other impacts is Dr. Philip Baker, who is a research fellow at Deakin University, where he is a member of the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition. Welcome, Phil. Thanks very much, Anthea, for having me. It's great to be on your show. Phil's a very busy, accomplished researcher. He's a member of the Global Nutrition Report Expert Group, was recently a fellow of the Lancet Commission on Obesity, and he consults regularly to the UN Food and Nutrition Agencies on policy and food governance topics. His publications are extensive, and recent ones include chapters in Healthy and Sustainable Food Systems, a book that was published this year. Uh, In one of those chapters, Phil, you explore the issue of the sheer quantity of junk food that's produced and consumed as being as important an issue as other perhaps better known mainstream healthy and sustainable food agendas that tend to focus on the overconsumption of meat and reducing food waste. Can you tell us about how you feel about the runaway growth in junk food production in the bigger picture and what what triggered your interest to research this particular part of the picture? Thanks, Anthea. That's a really good question. Um, Well, perhaps I'll start with what triggered my initial interest. I'm I'm a big surfer. I go surfing uh, all the time, um, and I've travelled to a lot of countries to go surfing. One of the the, among the countries I used to visit very frequently is was Fiji, and I used to go there at least a couple of times a year for for quite a few years. And there, over many trips, um, and I began to take a a really strong interest in, in the food food culture. I noticed that traditional foods were being, um, you know, traditional foods being seafood, traditional vegetables, uh, fruits, and so on, were being replaced with imported, processed, and ultra-processed foods. So um, turkey tails, mutton flaps, uh, spam um, were being integrated in a massive way into the traditional diets. And, of course, the Pacific Islands have uh, had a severe health uh, impact because of that some of the highest rates of obesity and non-communicable diseases in the world. I found that absolutely fascinating, um, especially in historical context. And so I decided to look into that more uh, with my, in my studies and my research and, and later in my PhD. And this is what is called a, a nutrition transition, right? So as countries transition through, uh, as they develop, as they become richer, more urbanized and so on, 
what populations eat and consume begins to change. And we, we tend to see this pattern playing out, not just in the Pacific Islands, but all around the world, actually. So um, sort of more traditional foods and tr- food cultures are replaced by more uh, highly processed um, diets, uh, more animal source foods, more caloric sweeteners, more vegetable oils, and so on. And not all countries go through this transition um, to, to the same degree, which, again, is a really interesting question. Why do some countries not go through this fully-blown transition to harmful diets as other countries go the whole way? <laughs> and so, you know, these ultra-processed food products are now a substantial share of the diets of populations in, all around the world. In Australia, it's about 42% of our calories we consume every day come from ultra-processed foods. In the United States, it's about 58%. In countries like Brazil and Mexico, somewhere between 20 and 30%. Um, In countries like South Korea, it's much lower. Um, uh, Countries like Italy, countries with really strong food cultures that have managed to resist um, the entry of these foods uh, into, into their populations. And that, to me, is just absolutely fascinating. And it is having quite you know, um, severe environmental impacts as well. Lots of packaging in the ocean as you surfed. That's right. I mean, <laughs> so let's talk about packaging. Um, so, you know, food packaging has enabled the growth of ultra-processed foods. You know, when you when you say uh, junk food always comes in packaging and, it, and usually that's always plastic packaging. Um, and so uh, I think there's been a, at least a 20-fold increase in plastic use um, uh, just in the last 50 years alone. Um, the three largest beverage producing companies, uh, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and Nestle, together, those three alone, and those are just three companies, they produce about three, three, uh, sorry, seven million metric tons of plastic waste every year. Seven million metric tons. I mean, that's an astronomical figure. What we know about that plastic waste is that only a small fraction of it is recycled. Uh, most of it, the large majority, ends up either in landfill or ends up in the environment. And so these companies, these products, are a huge contributor to the plastic waste stream entering into um, marine ecosystems. Um, and that's having a profound impact on the health of the environment, but also on human health. In terms of the environment, these plastics are you know, degrading and being consumed by marine life, um, birds and fish uh, and other species, uh, and entering the food chain. And we consume those microplastics, mostly uh, microplastics, when we consume the seafood. Now, in terms of human health, um, we know that these plastics contain uh, various chemicals, plasticizers, um, BPA uh, uh, is probably the most widely known one. And these chemicals are leaching into our food and having metabolic effects that are harmful to our health as well. It's just such a big web and such a big story, isn't it? Wasted calories and resources, making and laying waste to the environment and to us, all part of a prism through which to look at what ultra-processed foods are doing to us and to the planet. It's, uh, it's terrifying, really. Okay, so junk food is a pretty colloquial and wide-ranging term that can cover a lot, the good, the bad, and the not-so-ugly, perhaps, from homemade cakes to ultra-processed 
alphabet ingredient foods that you've just uh, alluded to. And these, some of these can last almost a lifetime on the shelf and certainly in landfill or in the ocean. Um, but, but we humans have been processing foods for thousands of years in simple ways, one, one way or another. Um, can you just give us an overview of what role food processing has played in human evolution and history? And obviously a lot of it's a good news story, but it's the latter part that's what's really perhaps scary. Yeah, th thanks for that question. So, yeah, food processing uh, is fascinating. And this is also, um, you know, something that I've taken a really strong interest in um, is, is the history of food processing and how food processing has enabled um, human evolution. Um, you know, my, one might say is that uh, humans became humans, the large, our large brain sizes, our physiology and so on, because we were able to process foods. Um, so the roasting of meat on a fire, we, we've been doing that for probably about 1.8 million years, uh, humans and our ancestors. Um, that enabled um, uh, yeah, us to, uh, well, it made the food much tastier, <laughs> as we know. Um, but it also made foods easier to digest. Um, the grinding of grains, um, wild grains, uh, grinding with a stone, and, and, and um, uh, we've been doing that for, for uh, many hundreds of thousands of years as well, making basic breads, um, and we still do that today. Um, many traditional foods that we um, find in, in cuisines all over the world are processed. Um, um, dried fish, cheeses, uh, so on and so forth. Um, a lot of fermented foods, for example. So these, you know, food processing has played a, a huge role in human evolution, in the in the development of, of of culture, food culture. It's also played a huge role in the growth of civilizations, right? So being able to produce um, large quantities of grain, for example, and then process that grain, turn it into bread. Um, it's one of the enabling, you know, factors of, of growth of cities, of civilizations, of empires. Um, so food processing is just so deeply intrinsic to um, the growth of human civilization as well. Um, but something's really dramatically changed in the way we've processed foods um, really in only the last 100 years or so. Uh, and this is where ultra processing comes in. And ultra processing is sub substantially different to these traditional forms of processing. That's a good lead into um, talking about the work of Carlos Montero, isn't it? Uh, he's, he's a Brazilian who's been studying the relationship between different types of foods and obesity, and he recently devised what's called the NOVA system for defining different categories of foods according to their level of processing and also to really help us uh, recognise which foods might most endanger our health. Building on what you've just said, can you briefly describe what the NOVA system is and where ultra-processed foods uh, fit within it and what's particular about them? Sure, yeah. This, the... Um, the, the, the NOVA system developed by Carlos Montero and colleagues uh, in Brazil has really been a game changer in, in nutrition because we tend to look at, we tend to, before, before NOVA came along, we tended to talk about junk food just in terms of risk nutrients. So we tended to use, uh, we still, many people still use these terms today. So energy dense, nutrient poor, high sugar, high fat, high salt foods, these nutrient sort of descriptors, 
there were other there are other terms that are used like discretionary foods uh, and discretionary is uh, you know implies that it's at the discretion of the consumer um, that, that also that they're you know they're not necessary for um, good nutrition or um, uh, but the the, the the Nova system focuses on the extent and the purpose of processing of food. Um, so when we talk about the categories that are in the Nova system, we talk about unprocessed or minimally processed foods. These are, you know, fruits, vegetables, um, milled grains, you know, flowers and so on. Um, basic food commodities that we would purchase and use to cook at home. We usually blend those foods with what we call Nova calls culinary food ingredients, just you know um, things like salt, vegetable oils, uh, sauces that we blend with those minimally processed or unprocessed foods. We make cuisines. That's what we have been doing for many, you know, tens of thousands of years in human history. So, Phil, Nova's sort of pictures a, a spectrum that's really helpful to sort of dissect the good, the bad, and the really ugly. So categories one to three, quite traditional, some processing, but category four, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so so the category four in the NOVA is ultra-processed foods. And uh, these are um, foods that really, by definition, do not re- contain whole food, any whole food at all. So the, the first three NOVA categories contain whole foods, ultra-processed Foods really contain ingredients or substances that have been extracted from foods. So, for example, um, we might take um, uh, vegetable oils, starches, uh, added sugars, and then combine those ingredients with cosmetic additives, so flavor enhancers uh, and other additives that change the appearance or the the taste or the uh, uh, the mouthfeel of the product, for example. And these are foods like uh, uh, soft drinks, confectionery, savory snacks like, you know, corn chips, potato chips, many refined packaged breads, um, biscuits, sweetened yogurts. Um, these are uh, foods that are different, um, not just in terms of the degree of processing, but also uh, because these foods have properties that make us consume more of them. They're hyper-palatable. They sort of seduce you psychologically and physically. Is that part of the picture? That's right. That's right. I mean, these foods have been designed with the intention of making us consume more of them because it's consuming more of these foods uh, and not less that sits at the very centre of the business model um, uh, that the companies that sell these foods have. Um, but it's so, so it's it's things like um, um, the you see, you mentioned the organic organoleptic uh, properties of the food, so the taste, the mouthfeel, the smell. Um, you know, and, and as humans, we are programmed to crave um, sugar, salt, and fat. These foods are often crammed full of exactly that sugar, salt, and fat. But they also it's it's much more than it's like the the sound they make when you bite into a, a chip. That is designed. By food scientists to be more appealing the structure of the food also makes us feel less full when we consume it so we talk about ultra processing does is it removes the food matrix so it breaks down because it's made of ingredients and not whole foods um, 
we, we strip all the fiber, we strip all the bulk out of the food, okay? And so when it goes into our stomach, it's not sending a signal to our brain that we're becoming more full. So we tend to overconsume um, these foods. Uh, and that's exactly um, how it's intended. Okay, so with the fiber stripped out by industrial processes, we don't fill up. And so we've, o- we've overfilled before we even realize we've uh, eaten too much. That's right. That's right. So, so the, 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 the key point here is that it's not just about the nutrients. It's not just about sugar, salt, and fat. There are other properties of these foods that are harmful to health that make us overconsume them. And I haven't even talked about marketing yet. I mean, these, the marketing budgets behind ultra-processed foods, the sophistication of the marketing techniques that are used to promote and advertise them are much, much, much greater than for, you know, fruits and vegetables, minimally and unprocessed foods. Um, but I should also say that there are other mechanisms that we need to talk about when we talk about the harms of ultra-processed foods for health. Now, I mentioned plastics before. We know that plasticizers and the packaging uh, entering into the food that's having all sorts of metabolic effects, which are harmful to our health. Uh, and some say that uh, these plasticizers might be contributing to obesity. Obesity is a, a metabolic disorder. Um, but it's also, um, you know, we, we, we see various carcinogens entering into the food supply through these foods as well. Uh, but the food colorings, additives, stabilizers, yeah. is that what you mean by um, that? Yeah, I mean, heterocyclic amines and um, uh, other carcinogens that come through uh, high temperature cooking. High temperature cooking, acroamide is, is one as well. We talk about high temperature cooking of uh, carbohydrate rich foods. Uh, there's also the, the the additives, and you know, not to say all additives are, are harmful for our health, but some are. And what we don't really understand is how combinations of additives that are in these products are working together to cause harm. What we do know is that these um, ultra-processed foods uh, and, and some of the additives that are in them are disrupting our microflora in the gut, um, and that has been linked to. Um, uh, degradation of the intestine and inflammation. And many of the diseases that we're talking about are inflammatory diseases. So heart disease, cancer, the, the origins of some of these diseases uh, is, is, uh, has that inflammatory mechanism um, in there. What about trans fats? Uh, you mentioned about how ultra-processed foods include sort of these really intensive industrial procedures and chemical modifications which and and I understand that includes adding hydrogen to otherwise healthy unsaturated fats oils um so so a lot of uh, ultra processed foods have trans fats can you tell us about trans fat what's bad about them yeah so uh, this is you know trans fats um or hydrogenated vegetable oils um you, you'll see the on the you'll see them on labels uh labeled in a different way, plant fats, uh, for example, um, vegetable fats, um, and have been around um, for a number of decades. And they really came into vogue um, when margarine started to replace butter as the main sort of you know, spread um, or cooking medium that we use. So, you know, it's going back to uh, several decades now. Um, and these fats are made by essentially heating, um, hydrogenating um, vegetable oils. So um, that changes the physical structure of the the, the fat. 
makes it solid at room temperature. And that has a lot of benefits, right, for food manufacturers because they can take a, a liquid oil and turn it into a solid fat, uh, which they can then add into the foods. That has other, pro- other benefits for manufacturers like changing the mouthfeel of the food as well. But the key point here is that trans fats, industrially produced trans fats, I should say, because trans fats are found in nature as well, uh, but uh, industrially produced trans fats we know are very harmful um, for, to our health and in particular to our cardiovascular health. Um, the good news is that um, the uh, volumes of trans fats in the food supply has been reduced uh, uh, over time in many countries and, you know, regulation of this by many com- uh, c- countries around the world. So so um, I, I love Michael Pollan because he does such pithy quotes. Um, uh, uh, some of his quotes include, um, don't eat anything incapable of rotting. Um, and if it came for a pl- from a plant, eat it. And if it was made in a plant, don't. Alrighty, so all in all, ultra-processed foods often are so extensively processed using industrial procedures that they are foods that don't even look like foods but are a little bit more actually like industrial products. Is that right? That's right. I mean, um, ultra-processed foods go hand-in-hand with capitalism, with big food. Um, You know, these foods are designed to be hyper-palatable to make us consume more of them, not less of them. They're designed to be highly profitable for the companies that produce them. And to, to be highly profitable, you need to sell a lot of them. And you need to have high profit margins, which means using cheap ingredients. Um, and you need to sell them in as many markets as possible, which means globalization. So, you know, these transnational corporations have essentially globalized uh, these products uh, and are now marketing them intensively um, in almost all countries worldwide. I mean, there's not a single country in the world that doesn't have these um, uh, products in them. These transnational corporations are everywhere in all markets, but they're also hyper-localized. And it's phenomenal, you know, just how far these ultra-processed food supply chains reach. I mean, I've been to some really remote Pacific islands and I've found Maggi 2-Minute Noodles and Coca-Cola. You can find these products in the far reaches of the Amazon jungle. I climbed the highest mountain in Vietnam a few years ago and lo and behold, there was a Coca-Cola, uh, there was a, a man selling Coca-Cola. I mean, these, these uh, supply chains are phenomenal. They're ubiquitous, aren't they? Is there anything else about the evidence about the harms of ultra-processed foods and what they do to human health that you'd like to add? Well, I'd just like to say, you know, usually we talk about um, evidence, right? Like what is the burden of proof that we need to start regulating these foods? Um, and we, we, we have this discussion around lots of policy issues. Tobacco is an example, right? Like we we develop solid evidence tobacco is harmful to human health and we decided to regulate these products. It's the same with ultra-processed foods. Do we have the evidence to substantiate the need to regulate them? I would argue that although the evidence is not as substantial as what we have with tobacco control yet, we see a, a very rapidly emerging body of evidence that ultra-processed foods harm human health uh, and the main harms that are being caused or the main links are with uh, obesity, cardiometabolic diseases, so heart disease and stroke, cancer. Uh, we see some evidence for links with gastrointestinal disorders, uh, asthma, um, and as you mentioned before, depression. 
So I think we've recently had a randomized control trial um, uh, as, as well on ultra-processed foods. Um, uh, and so I think we're also seeing this mechanistic evidence that emerging. Uh, I mentioned before the, the impacts on the microflora and so on. Um, so we're seeing that evidence starting to really take off now as well. So the burden of proof is, is there, I think. It's a cocktail of, of proof coming together about a cocktail of, of ingredients in, and, and industrial processes. Just uh, on that, uh, just the last few things on, on the impacts on human health. When we talk about malnutrition and the global syndemic of obesity and so forth, um, a lot of the problem with these foods that fill us up, but they're not actually giving us the micronutrients we need, are they? Well, that's the thing with ultra-processed foods. <laughs> it's quite interesting is that when, um, you know, the companies ultra-process these foods, they often strip the nutrients out, right? So, and, and then they have to put the nutrients back in. So we see these, um, you know, we use the term fortification. It's adding of micronutrients to foods um, because they lack those micronutrients. Um uh, we talk about functionalization. So there we're adding sort of novel bioactive ingredients or, uh, that are claimed to have some sort of effect, probiotics, prebiotics, um, of other types of phytonutrients, for example, antioxidants. Um, and uh, we also talk about um, the re- re- reformulation of these foods. So, you know, they're reducing sugar or swapping sugar with art- artificial sweeteners. So fortification um, functionalization and, re- and reformulation are the three major strategies that are used to create these foods. Now, one of the big harms of that, uh, you know, on the surface, it sounds great, right? Oh, we're adding some good stuff into these junk foods. But the harms of that is that it creates what's called a health halo effect. And we perceive these changes to the foods as beneficial for our health. And we know that that actually causes people to sometimes eat more of those foods rather than less. Take a look. Take a walk down the, the cereal aisle of your supermarket, and cereal boxes. You know these highly sweetened. You know Nutrigrain in Australia is the classic for me. Um, you know it's almost one third of the product is sugar. It's, it's marketed as an Iron Man food for fueling the lives of young Australians, and then it, you see all these claims. You know, like full of added niacin and vitamin this and, and mineral that. Um, Whereas really, it's an ultra processed food. It shouldn't be promoted like that. It's unethical. And, and the idea that we can replicate the, the nutrients, the, the nutritional properties of whole foods uh, is, 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 is a fallacy. Uh, you talk about an apple or, 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 or a piece of corn, uh, and there's actually a huge amount of nutritional complexity, fiber, phytonutrients that are, that are in that food. It's the, those nutrients are within a food matrix. And it's the mix as how they how the uh, chemistry all interacts with itself. That's right. That's right. And then and then you know the, the, then we eat those foods with other foods, and those those foods combine uh, to create a diet. You know, and and um, then we we somehow think we can re- you know just throw some starch, some added sugar, some flavorings and colorings, and then add a few micronutrients to a product that somehow emulates that is uh, I think. Uh, a fallacy. Just just wrapping up on the uh, health impacts in COVID times. What about the impact of ultra processed foods on our immune systems? Um, I'm glad you asked this question because uh, ultra processed foods in the age of COVID is a really important topic. 
Um, now, I'm not too sure about the immune impacts. I think there are plausible mechanisms linking ultra-processed foods with uh, disruptions to our microflora, our immune system. There are biological pathways there. I think that we're starting to understand. But I think the main relationship with COVID and ultra-processed foods is that these foods contribute to obesity. Obesity is a, uh, a risk factor for morbidity and mortality linked with COVID. So much higher risk of dying from COVID if you have uh, obesity comorbidity. Um, the, the other aspect of this is environmental. So, and, and this is a good segue actually to the environmental harms linked with ultra-processed food supply chains. To provision the, these companies to manufacture these foods, we're chopping down rainforests uh, all over the world um, and to produce commodities like palm oil. About 70% of all palm oil goes to manufacturing um, food. Most of the rest goes to manufacturing cosmetics, uh, shampoos and soaps and the like. Um, we know that COVID came about because of a disruption to the ecosystem, the more interactions between humans and the, the viral reservoir that is in those biodiverse regions. In this case, it was bats, we think. Um, so there is a link here. We, we can't, we, we're chopping down forests to grow more palm oil to produce more ultra-processed foods. There's, that's having a, you know, this is a, a system that's all, uh, it's all connected. Can we just uh, brief, you've already touched on this, but can we just do a quick sort of uh, overview of global trends in junk food consumption in terms of uh, how, how much junk food Australians consume? You've mentioned that. How is it trending? And how do we compare to other high-income countries? Yeah, so we looked at this um, closely in our recent paper. We, um, we looked at uh, the sales of these products all around the world, about 80 countries we looked at. What we found is that um, countries like Australasia, so Australia and New Zealand, uh, the United Kingdom, the United States and Canada consume the highest levels of these foods it's per capita. Um, so the, the, the volume of consumption in the United States is uh, insane. <laughs> Close to 400 kilograms of ultra-processed food and beverages per year per person. 50, 58% of the calories in the U.S. diet come from um, ultra-processed foods. Um, so we see um, some changes underway in, in these countries. The, the sales of some categories of ultra-processed foods are going down. So, for example, um, carbonated soft drinks, so, you know, your Coca-Colas, uh, we're seeing a reduction in consumption and a shift in the, in the types of products, for example, from sugar-sweetened to artificially sweetened. So there are some interesting trends there. Carbonated soft drink consumption is going down in Australia, but the companies have invested more into selling things like energy drinks, sports drinks, these higher-value products, which enable them to maintain you know, sales um, uh, and revenues. But the highest uh, worldwide, when we look at ultra-processed food um, sales and consumption overall, the, the key point here is that sales are taking off in industrializing countries. And these highly, highly populated countries, where we're starting to see these products uh, take off. So this is a major, major concern for global health and for the uh, environment. 
Um, so you've already spoken about the nutrition transition, but what's really interesting is that from what you've just said is that the poor or middle-income people in the Middle East, Africa, Asia-Pacific might be at the forefront of current health risk from ultra-processed foods as consumption grows, but they're also bearing the brunt of a lot of the environmental impact. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at, say, climate change, for example, um, or, you know, sea level rise, um, uh, disruptions to water supply and so on, those those are the countries that, first of all, uh, you know, are, are bearing the brunt of those effects and also the countries that tend to have the least capacity to respond to that. So that's, that's right. I think there's a bit of a, a, a health and environmental kind of double whammy going on there. But I sort of sort of say that, you know, these are products that are superfluous to human need, right? These are, are largely luxury products. I mean, they don't add – having a Coke doesn't add anything, any value uh, nutritional value um, to anyone and actually causes harm. Um, but it's also a luxury. And, you know, it's a question of uh, whether we should encourage consumption of luxury products, uh, expenditure on products in countries where we want to see that expenditure going into basic needs. You know, whole foods, uh, good nutrition, diverse diets, but also health, education, you know, all the things that people need to flourish. Uh, and instead, we're spending it on junk food. It is a form of waste. Yeah, and it's, it's, it has major implications for development. It's part of the it's part of the narrative that we never uh, really talk about. You and Michalis talk about um, any food consumption beyond metabolic needs as being a potentially avoidable environmental burden, essentially a form of waste, which from the lens of uh, a land and resource constrained world and food and nutrition security uh, means that we're just not optimally using really in increasingly important, valuable foodstuffs, inputs. That's sort of what you're talking about there too, isn't it? That's right. And, and this is the key point. I'm glad you asked that question um, because, you know, a lot of the times when we talk about reducing the environmental harms of ultra-processed foods, we talk about sustainable production and consumption initiatives. So, for example, um, a lot of the companies are signed up to the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil uh, I think it's called that. Uh, I could have the name wrong. But anyway, it's about, you know, sourcing sustainable palm oil. Um, <laughs> it's about greening their supply chain, right? But what's the point of greening the supply chain of something that's unnecessary in the first place? What's the point of greening the supply chain of an ultra-processed food product that we just simply shouldn't have on our shelves? We shouldn't be consuming it. Um, that might sound like a radical position, but when our planet is heading for a you know, a two degree plus warming scenario when our oceans are falling full of plastic, our rainforests are being cut down. That is a, that is part of the conversation that we need. That That is part of the shift in the narrative that we need. I love the way you put that. It's about sustainable sourcing of imports for a fundamentally problematic product or, um, or just uh, uh, colonising the narrative, if you like, to frame food systems sustainability issues in a way that's just doesn't make sense. That's right. So, you know, we, we sort of say, oh, great. Hey, look, Nestle and Unilever, you know, they're greening their supply chain. They're sourcing palm oil sustainably. Uh, problem solved. It's not solved. <laughs> they're actually, we're enabling the production of these products, the continuation of the production of these products, the harm that's being caused by them. And we tend to, you know, it's the greening of a particular aspect of the supply chain 
that we then ignore other aspects of, you know, there are many aspects of the supply chain that are unsustainable uh, as well. And even when we look at these sustainability initiatives and say, well, how effective are they? Uh, they, they don't seem to be that effective at all. I mean, even Nestle will admit that a, lot, a huge proportion of palm oil in their products is not from sustainable sources. Uh, I think we need to quite radically change the, the narrative around these, uh, these initiatives and these products. That's really, really interesting uh, narrative work, isn't it? You've uh, just, just very quickly, um, Australians, we're sort of trending perhaps down on some of the more tricky areas, but what's our overall sort of ecological footprint uh, from discretionary or, or junk foods in terms of water, energy use, carbon dioxide, land use? Is it about a third or it's even over a third, isn't it? I think we said it was about a third in our recent uh, paper uh, book chapter with Michaelis, but it's actually something that we um, are working on at the moment and need to do much more work on. Um, we haven't done a lot of work on the ecological footprint or life cycle assessments of ultra-processed foods because it's actually quite methodologically difficult um, to do it. Um, I mean, so the, the, the ultra-processed food I've been working on a lot recently with the WHO is infant formula. Uh, infant formula is arguably the first ultra-processed food that we, you know, many humans will consume in their lives. It contains 45 plus ingredients. Um, so doing a life cycle assessment of infant formula, and you know, that's not to mention packaging and, you know, and so on, but that's a really complex supply chain, many stages of processing uh, packaging, distribution, it's really hard to, you know, to methodologically to do that. So we're just, we're working on these, these, these techniques, these methodological techniques to do that now. And, and nutrient density as one of the key considerations of any analysis I imagine might be on the horizon, is it? Uh, well, that's not something that I sort of tend to favour. Um, you know, I tend to think, we need to shift our analyses more towards foods and diets and food systems and planetary systems rather than a reductive focus on nutrients because people people consume foods. They don't consume nutrients. I'm not saying it's not important. You know, um, there are a, a, a nutrient deficiencies, uh, micronutrient deficiencies uh, that we need to address. So if we agree that ultra-processed foods are fundamentally a problem for people, for our health and for the environment, what and where do we start? What can we do about it? So, okay, so this is something we looked at closely in our recent paper. The first question is, what's driving ultra-processed food consumption? What's causing the harm linked with ultra-processed foods? Okay, and so what we say in, in our recent paper is that this is really about a, a major transformation in our food system. So, first of all, it's a displacement of minimally processed and unprocessed foods or traditional processed foods with ultra processed foods so we need to stop that from happening right we need to stop the rise halt the rise in the growth in ultra processed food consumption and we need to protect traditional diets we need to promote dietary diversity we need to promote um you know whole food diets containing whole foods um, the, 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 the first priority is to regulate ultra processed foods so that's, for example, um, tax, taxing uh, these foods. Um, we know that leads to reduced consumption. Um, labeling of these foods. Um, restrictions on their availability so that 
might include, for example, um, limiting or, or getting these foods out of schools. Uh, we've done pretty well on that front in, in Australia, but many other countries have not. Um, restricting access to these foods, like you know, the density of uh, retail outlets that sell them, uh, getting rid of things like price promotions, um, for example. But we also need to look at changing the, the supply chain as well. So, you know, we, we can we can alter the dynamics of that supply chain by by changing our land use practices. So, moving away from the production of these large monocultural uh, uh, crops uh, to more div- you know biodiverse uh, agricultural production methods, for example, I think that will have huge flow-on effects, which has a huge interaction with um, preserving the uh, preserving traditional food cultures and actually relearning and building up traditional food cultures and biodiverse plant sources that can grow in all sorts of climates and environments and landscapes. That's going to become even more important with climate change, isn't it? That's right. We you know ultra-processed foods. Uh, we don't have good evidence to back this up yet, but my informed opinion is that ultra-processed foods are contributing dramatically to the reduction in biodiversity in our agricultural systems uh, and in our natural sy- ecosystems as well, as we see you know, deforestation, the loss of habitat and so on. Um, so, you know, that we've seen that now with COVID, right? We, we, we lack resilience in the food system. Um, because of this, because of this reliance on a small number of crops, um, where it's coming back to bite us. Biodiverse uh, agriculture is, uh, you know, one of the key solutions there to uh, enabling that resilience in the system. And food justice and food sovereignty. <laughs> um, and, and they're just returning back to waste, you know, so wasted calories, wasted food, wasted fat, um, but also just the sheer very visible picture of the waste of packaging. I read somewhere recently that, um, you know, it's a hugely highly concentrated food industry with, um, you know, big food, some, what, nine or ten producers, and that something like only 10% of the budget for processed foods is actually spent on the ingredients with something like 50% spent on packaging and 40% spent on marketing. That's just incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, the... I mean, especially the marketing expenditure. I mean, the, the the regulation of marketing of these products will be a game changer. I mean, I think it, there's something I didn't really talk about before, but I think uh, we know this from tobacco control, right? When you when you when you regulate the marketing of these products, uh, we we see dramatic reductions in consumption, um, and the the expenditures of these companies on marketing is staggering. I mean, Coke and Pepsi, two companies alone. Uh, spend about four and a half billion dollars a year on marketing. I mean, that's a it's a figure that exceeds the entire annual budget of the World Health Organization. They're just two companies, so that's talking about a measure of marketing intensity. Um, but we also need to talk about the marketing techniques and the sophistication of those marketing techniques, and especially in the digital digital age, these companies are now using big data platforms, so cross device tracking. Um, you know, they're even tracking movements of consumers within stores, um, collecting individualized data to then personalize advertisements, uh, using advert gaming, you know, to target children in particular. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that we really need to question is uh, the targeted advertising, 
the, the use of, uh, you know, we see uh, uh, children and we see this everywhere in terms of, you know, the cast, popular cartoon characters, uh, the merchandising of, you know, major Disney movies and so on, all over the products. Um, so, you know, these are really sophisticated techniques. I think it calls into question whether we're exercising true choice uh, in terms of our consumption habits uh, when we have this massive marketing system that is just trying to undermine uh, that choice. So I don't think it, we can't say be more responsible to consumers when they are just relentlessly, you know, uh, under assault. <laughs> uh, yeah, by by this by this marketing and especially vulnerable, cons- you know, populations like children. So that's a really interesting point. Uh, the power of the sector is huge. Uh, to date, in climate change and concern for the environment when we worry about the energy sector, a lot of attention focuses on divestment. But is there a case for global investors and superannuation funds to be thinking about junk foods and big food in the same way that we've been tacking uh, consumers, concerned citizens have perhaps been uh, demanding change in the energy sector? I think so, yes. I mean, when we look at um, who are the investors in these, um, these companies, most of those investments are managed by a small number of, um, you know, hedge funds, uh, capital management funds, which are re- really representing superannuation funds. Um, so, you know, it is it is really our super funds that are going into um, these companies uh, right throughout the supply chain. Um, but I think it's also key to look at this from from a systems level as well, because you know, if we divest from big oil, uh, you know, that's going to have a flow-on effect to increasing the price of plastics. Um, you know, I think by 2050, it's estimated about 20% of all oil, you know, produced will go into plastics production, of which, you know, a huge share of that will be for packaging foods. So I think we need to get really smart about uh, how we use investment as a mechanism for changing the system as a whole. Um, but at the moment, the fundamental economics of our food supply um, are just massively favouring um, ultra-processed foods. Uh, you know, cheap, cheap energy, cheap um, yeah, production inputs. We're not, we're not pricing the cost of deforestation. Of we're not, we're definitely not pricing the cost of recycling um, plastics uh, into the pricing of these products. So, you know, I would argue we need to have a, a radical rethink about uh, this. This does call for a radical rethink about the economics of our of our food supply as well. The cost to people, the cost to the environment and the cost to our public health systems. It's just huge, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Let's, let's talk about true pricing. Mm. Phil, I think when we spoke a while ago, you, you, you said something that just really struck home with me. You said, um, you know, there's a dramatic need to rehumanise the food system and, and for us to uh, be food citizens, not just consumers, and that um, as much as the science can give us the data and it's absolutely critical to understanding intervention points and so on, that when the in terms of the transformation, the big changes perhaps might come from other places. And you spoke about um, transforming values and visions and touching hearts and minds and you, you spoke about... Uh, you know, the impact of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and um, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, where he uh, looked at the dreadful conditions in the meat industry in the early 
20th century in the States. Uh, he said, I aimed at the public's heart, but by accident I hit them in the stomach and it just triggered this incredible wave of uh, food science and food health reform in the United States at a time when it really needed it. What do you think about David Attenborough's A Life on Earth? Is that uh, a call out to artists and writers and to all of us that might help us reset the vision and the values? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, that's uh, the... I watched Life on Earth on the weekend, actually. It really moved me. Uh, you know, here we have a, a, a one of the world's, you know, arguably greatest human beings um, talking about his um, experiences over his career and how... He's watched the world's population grow from just a couple of billion to seven and a half billion. The carbon in the atmosphere escalate. Uh, species species loss, biodiversity loss just escalate. Uh, and just calling the alarm, you know, on this resounding alarm that uh, human beings need to rethink uh, our place um, and, and on this planet and our relationship with nature. You know, we are codependent. There is uh, no different, the, the, the environment and our economy are so deeply interwoven. Um, we cannot separate, we cannot think about these as separate entities. But, you know, I think about reflecting on all of that, um, uh, what you're talking about there in terms of, you know, Silent Spring and the jungle and these pieces of literature that have actually been game-changing in terms of shifting policy, shifting thinking, shifting um, human values about particular issues. This, I think, sits at the very centre of what we need to do um, to rethink our food systems in their entirety. Um, all of us eat three meals a day. Well, if you're lucky to, there's actually probably about a billion of us during COVID who won't eat three meals a day, uh, unfortunately. But... Most of us are only, you know, and there's this expression, we're only nine meals away from um, from anarchy. You know, we're seeing political destabilization in many countries around the world because of the lack of access to, to food, high food prices that, that COVID-19 is bringing on. This all brings into question our basic human values and what values we want to prioritize in our food systems, but also in our human systems in our, in our economy and our uh, civic life uh, going forward. You know, do we want to just keep consuming and producing ourselves into the ground um, uh, through the relentless march of capitalism? Or do we want to prioritize other values like equity, like uh, the flourishing of our ecosystems? Um, flourishing dignity of human beings everywhere. This is, this is about fundamentally rethinking the very values that sit at the center uh, of, uh, of the food system. Um, and I think that's where the change will come. Ultimately, that's, you know, that's what David Attenborough was talking about. We need to re rethink, revalue. We need to close the loop on a whole lot of these ridiculous dysfunctions that are hurting us, hurting our kids, hurting the environment, and uh, really looking at what we can do locally at home. Any further thoughts or final comments you'd like to help us wrap up with? Uh, well, thank you so much, first of all, for having me on the podcast. Uh, you covered a lot of ground. And I think, you know, uh, really, um, for me, um, food and food systems are really a lens onto society. And, you know, I think uh, it's a way of understanding society through, through food, basically. And to me, ultra-processed foods 
and obesity are really uh, indicators of something that's going very wrong in our food system. Um, you know, that these foods are consumption is taking off around the world uh, and having systemic effects on our environment and human health is, is alarming. Um, we have to question what does this say about our food system? Um, and I think we have to really move away from these corporate sort of narratives around greening supply chains, uh, around, you know, uh, these companies being part of the solution, reformulating their products and so on, which, uh, and we need to just fundamentally question um, the need for these very products uh, in the first place, and especially the need for these products in, uh, in countries that are, uh, that are going, going through um, phases of development. These, uh, and I think for those countries, for policymakers in those countries, I think the question is, do, do they want to transition um, to, to high ultra-processed food diets? Or do they want to stop, halt the rise, protect their traditional food cultures, protect their environments by making a deliberate policy choice uh, to do exactly that? And that that will involve a heavy hand for government. It will involve um, regulation uh, and the use of law. Um, we need to regulate the commercial drivers uh, of this global epidemic, uh, essentially. But I will just say also, so what does this mean for us as individuals? Is 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 just simply this. Don't eat ultra-processed foods. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not being the food police here. Uh, I sometimes partake in, you know, eating a bit of chocolate or eating some nachos or something. So I'm not saying be Puritan, but I'm saying that would be my sing most singular, most important piece of advice: is unprocess your diet as much as you can, or process process your diet as far as it means, you know, cooking your food, um, but don't ultra-process your diet. Uh, I like that. I like that. Unprocess your diet, make it local, and look after your local food culture. Yeah, that's 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 right. And and you know, Michael Pollan's advice is always very sound: eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Don't eat stuff your grandma wouldn't recognise. If it claims to be healthy on the label, it's probably definitely not healthy. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.